we'll leave it there. But last but not least, we have Russia continuing their offensive across the entire, nearly the entirety of the front. Now, I, I'll admit, I'm not usually keeping up with the war map, primarily because it doesn't move very much. But I got a glimpse. I got a glimpse. I was watching uh, Brian Berletic from the New Atlas. I think that's the name of his show. And he showed a war map. It was li- the liveuamap.com. And on the map, it had a, a number of uh, number of symbols. Number of symbols. I'm trying to think of the right word here. But you know, I'll just run. It had a number of uh, symbols that we each symbolized different things. And when there was a rifle, it meant that there was advances being made by the sides. Now, there's red rifles for the Russians and blue rifles for the Ukrainians. And wherever you see a dot with the rifle on it, it meant that that was a place where, uh, if it was blue, Ukraine was making advances. They were make, doing offensive operations. And if it was red, it meant that the Russians were conducting offensive operations. So, but when you look at the map, you see like one or two blue dots and then like at least 20 red dots across nearly the entire front line. Nearly the entire front line, red dots with rifles on them, meaning indicating, according to that map, that the Russians were doing offensive operations across nearly the entire front line, with the exception being parts of the front line in Kherson, which, you know, makes sense given that Kherson is sort of the, the furthest extremity of Russia's front and the whole point of Russia consolidating its position where it was for the last nearly a year was to keep themselves from overextending. And they were having issues for a, a good while. They had to pull back from Kherson City to consolidate their line. So it, it makes sense that they're not attacking from the Kherson area, that they're staying right where they are and they're attacking everywhere else so that they can stay anchored along the river, so to speak, and they can keep their defenses bolstered there. But everywhere else, offense and barely anything from Ukraine, it was, it was honestly enlightening. And I don't mean that as an I've gained a, a new understanding of the war. I mean, I mean, enlightening as in it's it's one thing to hear that the Russians are making advances here and there uh, in the north and that Ukraine's uh, counteroffensive is stalled out. But to sort of see it laid out across the entire map gives you a, a slightly different perspective because, uh, wow, Russia's attacking everywhere. They're attacking everywhere. And earlier on, we brought up how they those 37 settlements Ukraine was evacuating from around Kharkov because Russian troops and artillery were advancing. So they're getting, they're closing in on Kharkov. Uh, I say closing in, they're probably still miles away, but they're close enough for some of these settlements to be within range of their artillery. And I imagine that, well, they're only going to get further within the range of that artillery because Ukraine doesn't, uh, they really can't, fight russia and i'm really i'm really appreciating all the all the thought that went into my positions early on in this war because i said it i i do love quoting myself i do i do Uh, 
I try to be humble, but you know, you you know me. I said it early on. Where the Russians choose to stay, Ukraine cannot move them out. And where the Russians choose to go, Ukraine can just put up a fight and make Russia bleed for it. Ukraine cannot stop the advance of the Russian military, and Ukraine cannot force Russia to leave somewhere where the Russians are prepared to defend it. Like they, if the Russians have like two thousand men <laughs> defending damn near an oblast, yeah, you can force them to retreat. If the Russians have a bridgehead, and that bridgehead is easy to get rid of by destroying the bridge, okay, yeah, you can force them back. You can even, but even with the Kherson offensive. Ukraine didn't force Russia back. Russia was just in a precarious situation that they weren't comfortable with, and they chose to fall back behind the river after inflicting thousands of losses on the Ukrainians who were participating in the Kherson offensive. If you'll remember, way back uh, last summer, actually around this time last summer, when the, the Kherson offensive was going on, and then they shut up about the Kherson offensive real quick and started talking about the Kharkov offensive. Because that, that's where the Russians fell back more because they were lots of empty land and they didn't have enough men to guard all that territory. So they fell back. But where the Russians choose to stay, as demonstrated now, Ukraine, they can't force them out. But now the Russians are attacking everywhere across the line. And the Ukrainians are falling back. They they literally can't. They've been the Ukrainians have been slowly but surely falling back this entire time. They've only recently turned the tide briefly with their counteroffensive, and look at what it cost them to do that. Again, hundreds of tanks, hundreds of armored vehicles, dozens of artillery pieces, tens of thousands of men. You can't recover from that. So to see like two blue dots across the entire front line and uh, somewhere around 20 i'll just say that somewhere around 20 uh, red dots all both of them with the rifles on it says okay russia's russia's making advances this is the russian offensive but it also indicates to me that Ukraine's great counteroffensive has ended. I think it's while they they still narratively say that it's still going on and that there's they they have a long fight ahead and they're going to keep going till like the end of August or till the end of uh, September October. Seeing the map and seeing no Ukrainian offenses going on in that map. Now, Brian Berletic claims that that map is pro-Ukraine. Uh, I can neither confirm nor deny that. But if he's uh, accurate in that assessment, then you have a pro-Ukraine source saying that Ukraine is barely attacking. They're on the defense across the entire line. That's that's not an offensive. That's not an offensive. That's a defensive. And if you're on the defensive while you're supposedly on the offensive, well, okay, one of those isn't uh, true. Now, you could say, oh, it's war. So, of course, you're going to do defending here and there. But defending across the entire line while you're supposedly doing a, a, a counteroffensive? No. 
you're, you're losing. You, your counteroffensive doesn't exist anymore. They are actually being pressed by Russia to such an extent that the Ukrainians aren't even able to attack anymore. They're, they're just weathering the storm. And if you're weathering the storm and you're still being pushed back, how can you be the one conducting a counteroffensive? I think it is safe to say that not only has their offensive end failed, not only has the offensive failed, but we can now truly say that their offensive has ended. And that the Russians, the Russians are now the ones on the move. Is this the beginning of the backbreaker offensive? I don't know. It, it very well could be. Uh, and it seems to be playing out almost entirely as I said it would. Ukraine throwing away its reserves, throwing away its equipment in an offensive that they can't win in, the Russians sitting there spamming them with artillery and drones, and mines, apparently. The Russians are very toxic in mines. And once the Ukrainians ran out, well, now the Russians just walk. And Ukraine has to fall back, and then fall back, and then fall back. Because they got an injection of artillery for this offensive. That artillery isn't able to keep up with the Russians. And we don't have the production to allow them to continue with the current rates of fire, where they're firing thou, where they're firing a, a actually decent amount of artillery shells a day, you know, like somewhere in the vicinity of 10,000, eight to 10,000, I'd say, uh, which is significantly further up from the 1,000 that they were down to back in March, like when they hit rock bottom. But that infusion of shells is temporary. And this offensive has been going on for two and a half months. Eventually, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the, the movie Logan, uh, where Wolverine, he starts losing his powers. And it gets to the point where he, he, um, he he's not able to fully heal from his fight with uh, X-24. So he's trying to get the kids to the Canadian border. And in the final fight, he takes the this, this medicine that basically recreates a, his healing factor. You inject it into yourself and you have this, you have basically you have Wolverine's healing factor. He injects all the medicine into him. And for a, a brief moment, old man Logan is back to his prime and he's just running through the forest, cutting down everything in his way, taking bullet, taking bullets like they're nothing. And then he just throws bodies <laughs> and cuts people in half. But then the medicine wears off. And when the medicine wears off, his healing factor is gone because it, it had deteriorated that much over the course of the movie. That's Ukraine. Ukraine's supply of artillery is analogous to Wolverine's healing factor in that movie. And the recent injection of shells we gave them for this counteroffensive was the medicine that revitalized him and got him back to his prime for that, that brief few moments. But once those shells start to wear out, it's going to be just like when the medicine started to 
fade and the healing factor was no longer there we don't have neither we nor ukraine has the production for that and then i'll just for those of you who haven't seen the movie uh i've spoiled enough even though it's a pretty pretty old movie now i'm getting <laughs> but it didn't end too well for wolverine by the end of that movie and i think it's not going to end too well for ukraine with the way things are going and they're they're going to run out of artillery we know that that's going to happen because they already did before and it took a they got they had to get bailed out by united states and uh, south korea indirectly who's going to bail them out this time cuz china's not india's not nobody on the side of ukraine is has the capacity to bail them out this time there's which means there's no coming back once they go over the edge this time with their artillery uh, with their their artillery fire rates it's over they won't be able to come back from that uh, unless something happens that I'm just not anticipating. Like, I don't know, Arabia gives them a massive injection of shells or, or, or maybe the Russians have some sympathy or maybe they, they capture a Russian uh, ammunition depot. You know, you know, it's certain things can happen in war. But once uh, I feel that given what we can see, once they fall off with their artillery production, they won't be able to get it back up again. And that's in an artillery intensive war. Artillery is the killer of like 70% of all the casualties in the war. Artillery is responsible for 70% of the casualties. So in an artillery war, an artillery driven war of infantry, because it's primarily infantry, artillery, infantry, and missiles are what's really driving this war with drones as an honorable mention. You can't lack artillery. You can't lack artillery shells. Because now you can't defend yourself. Uh, you need tanks and armored vehicles and air power if you want to mount an offensive. But for defense, you, at you need artillery. The air defense missiles work against aircraft. They work against aircraft. But if you want to fight against the attacking infantry formations, you need artillery. And if you don't have artillery, it's over for you. You need artillery in this war, and Ukraine is going to run out of our... They're going to run out of ammunition. Like, they're not lacking in drones for the time being, but the Russians are learning to counter them with electronic warfare and jamming. Ukraine needs to make peace. It's like I, we've been beating the dead horse. We've been beating the dead horse. I'll, I'll, I'll say it. We've been beating the dead horse. Ukraine need, needs to make peace. They are losing. And it's going to get worse for them, not better, until they do. But I, the trends, the trends just do not favor Ukraine in this endeavor. They're losing men. Uh, reports are that they're conscripting women now to go fight for the motherland. Well, or in their case, I guess the fatherland. <laughs> but they're, they're killing. 
generations of, of their own people who stayed back when the war started. And those that left have no intention of coming back. Ukraine is going to be a broken nation when this is over. And the longer it continues, the more broken of a nation they will be. It, it's it's insane. But what's also insane is the fact that uh, nobody in the, the propaganda press is willing to admit that the Ukrainian offensive is uh, essentially stopped and is being reversed, actively being reversed as we speak by the Russian counter-counter offensive, the backbreaker offensive. Instead, they have they have come around to admitting that Ukraine's offensive hasn't gone as planned and it hasn't gone as well as people thought that they would because Russia's military performed better than we assumed that it would when we suddenly decided that Russia's military was uh, fourth-rate and incompetent, magically. It's... It's getting bad for Ukraine. It's getting bad. And seeing that map really did give me a, a different perspective on this. Because, again, it's one thing to hear that Russia's on the move, even while Ukraine's having this, this counteroffensive. It's one thing to hear that Ukraine isn't making much progress. It's another thing to see visually all the red bubbles where Russia's doing attacks and Ukraine is being forced back. They're... They only captured uh, uh, 62 square miles of land. So what, you're going to have that rolled, and it took you two and a half months and you lost everything to get it. You're going to lose that in a month now? Is that is that where we're going? Because if so, it's a wrap. It's actually a wrap at that point. That would be, you know, forget an embarrassment, that's a critical blow. Again, like we're reaching, we're reaching the apex. We, we're really reaching the apex of this war. Because at a certain point, we're, we're crossing too many thresholds that Ukraine can't come back from. You, once Ukraine crosses that threshold where they can't, where they start to fall off in their artillery shells, where they, they can't put up as many shells a day as the Russians are, once they, well, they already can't, but once they, once they fall off from the eight to 10,000 that they're already using, it's a wrap. They can't come back from that. Once they, all their drones get canceled in by Russian electronic jamming, well, it's a wrap. You can't come back from that. And it doesn't matter how many drones you get. Once you have, I mean, they already ran out of air defense missiles and that can't be replenished fast enough because the russians are now bullying them from the skies and they've already crossed that threshold so you which is why we're seeing the presence of the russian air force so heavily now and you you have the stories uh, again those mines which are being deployed not just by russian missiles but by russian helicopter squads dropping mines behind enemy behind the enemy formations as they're attacking you that wouldn't be possible if Ukraine's air defenses were still uh, as strong as they were at the beginning of the war. But they're not. They crossed that threshold. Now Russia's air force is active. They're going to cross the threshold of not having the artillery shells they need to fight back. That's, uh, they're not going to be able to come back from that this time because there's no more injections of shells available for them. At least none that I can see right now. They certainly aren't coming back from the losses of armored vehicles and tanks 
they're not coming back from that. And none of the people that they've lost are going to, they can get back any either. They're reaching the limits of their manpower pool. They're, they're very large manpower pool, mind you, but they're exhausting it. They're drafting women now. It was one thing when they were drafting little boys off the street when they were, they would have vans uh, with of men with guns and the snatching little boys off the street, uh, teenagers of course not not they haven't gotten down to the five year olds yet. It's another thing to be snatching the women off the street to put them into the brigades, assuming that those reports are true. But we're crossing too many thresholds here where Ukraine is just being set up for failure. You ran out of air defense missiles, you're set up for failure. You're running out of artillery, you're set up for failure. You've lost your tanks and your armored vehicles, you're set up for failure. You're crossing too many thresholds. And at some point, it's all gonna come down. It's all gonna come crashing down in a, what can only be described as a catastrophic defeat for Ukraine. And again, they did all that. They lost hundreds of tanks, hundreds of armored vehicles, tens of thousands of men for a, a hundred square kilometers, 62 square miles. And they're now actively losing land to the Russians across the entire front. Slowly, but they're losing it. It's... I do not see how Ukraine can win this. And I certainly don't see how, in the light of all this, they come to the decision to just not negotiate with Russia ever until Russia gets rid of Putin and pulls all their troops out of Ukraine. When this is the reality on the ground that you're facing, that's that's the decision you come to? It's crazy. We we really do live in some crazy times. Uh, I'll say that. It, it makes it very easy for me to do my podcast, though. I'll say I'll say that a million times. Oh boy, I do love having easy work here. But it's crazy as someone who's observing this from the outside in. It if it was me, I if it was me, we, we wouldn't have gotten to this point. I would have said, you know what, you know what, uh, I can't beat that. I cannot beat that. So we're just gonna turn the game off and. <laughs> We're just gonna turn the game off, and I'm gonna go get some popcorn. And well, that—that's how this would gone through me. But you know, I guess, I guess yeah, to be fair, you don't have that option in real life. So you know, I just extend that olive branch to the Ukrainians. But I really don't see how they pulled this one. I, I really don't see how they pull through on this. I don't know what magic trick they have where they can pull a, a victory out of the hat of defeat, but. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. Uh, the possibility is there. I just can't see it. I am blind to that possibility. And I don't think I'm wrong for being blind. They can't come back from this. Ukraine, I think we've reached the high watermark of Ukraine's war effort. And from this point onwards, it's just going to be steady and constant deterioration, which might even accelerate as they run out of artillery again, as, as they've exhausted their armored vehicles and their ability to fight back because they, they ran out of air defense missiles. No air defense, no artillery, no armor. 
So you can't defend from the sky, you can't defend against infantry, and you can't attack. What's left for you? Defeat. Only defeat. And while all this is going on, meanwhile in Russia, uh, like they've become the largest economy in Europe and the fifth largest in the world, measured in purchasing power parity terms. It, it, it's crazy that people would suggest that Ukraine's going to win this war. Like, even if the United States began replacing all of Ukraine's tanks and all of Ukraine's armored vehicles with our own surplus equipment, we still don't have the ammunition for them. We don't have the ammunition for Ukraine to mount another, well, certainly not more than one more of these offensives. After that, it's game over. Ukraine has one more great offensive in it. I'm, I'm going to say it now. They have, they have at least one more. I won't downplay them that damn much. They have at least one more of these great counteroffensives in them. But after that, it's a wrap. Because you can't get the artillery, you can't get the, the ammunition, you can't, you, you can't get the armor. It's a wrap. And again, while all this is going on, while we've unleashed economic warfare and economic siege of the Russians, they become the fifth largest economy in the world. The largest economy in Europe. Now, one might... Now, if we're, if we're going off the, the whole, oh, their economy is the size of New York, oh, their economy is the size of Italy, if you go off that, then this is uh, a shock. But if you go off of purchasing power parity terms, they were never that far behind from Germany. And this, this uh, news coming out does vindicate what we've been saying here on the podcast, you know again, that the whole economy the size of Italy and New York State was some, uh, some bull. It, yeah, we've been saying that that did, literally didn't make any sense. We've been saying that since the war began, and ever since I got my hands on that uh, Big Mac indicator, um, which basically takes the Big Mac and compares the price of a Big Mac in every country to give you a rough estimation of purchasing power parity. And based on the Big Mac index, Russia's economy in terms of purchasing power parity, PPP, was roughly on par with Germany. So the fact that they're now objectively larger than Germany doesn't necessarily come as a surprise when we hear that Germany is going into recession. Um, but what's more surprising about that statistic isn't necessarily that it happened, but that it happened while Russia was under an economic siege. They're, they're un Remember, we have the mother of all sanctions on Russia, and yet they become the largest economy in the world. Ah, I mean, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. The, uh, let's, let's not get too crazy. They, they, they didn't become the largest economy in the world. They, they became the fifth largest economy in the world. I forgot the fifth. So let's, let's, not go, uh, let's not go jerking the Russians off too hard now. But yeah, I've been saying that the whole comparison between them and New York State, the, the comparison between them and Italy didn't make sense. It literally didn't make sense. Because tell me that Italy or New York, the state, are capable of doing what Russia's doing in Ukraine. You and I both know damn well that neither of them are able to do what Russia's been doing. Neither Italy nor New York are sanction-proof, so that's out the window. Neither of them are expanding their trade with the war while they're at war with somebody else. That's out the window. Uh, neither of them are fielding an army of 750,000 men in peacetime. Neither of them are able to do that, let alone fielding the 1.7 million men uh, that... Russia's commands today. Neither New York nor Italy is doing that. And you and I both know that that is the case. 
And they certainly aren't doing all of that at the same time while still growing their economy to fifth largest in the world. Largest in Europe. No, 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 no. Italy and New York, they might be wonderful places, but they ain't doing that. They ain't doing that. You and I both know that's that's not the case. Now, Russia's economy was set to grow by around 1.5% this year. But considering that that number is up from the half a percent it was slated to be earlier on this year, it's completely possible that Russia's economy grows by the average 2% or more this year while under sanctions. While under sanctions. Yet, the EU, impotent as ever, is working on its 12th sanctions package. Or did they pass the 12th sanctions package? Oh, who cares? Stock is going to do anything. <laughs> You're at number 12. Give it a rest. Like, at this point, their, their sanctions packages are reminiscent of Italy during World War One, with their offensives in the Asanzo. For those who don't know... Uh, during World War One, Italy, after they joined the war on the side of the Entente, they were fighting Germany, Austria, Hungary, and the Ottomans. Italy only really had one front line to fight on, so they were fighting Austria in the Alps along the Asanzo River. And the every time they attacked, it failed. Like every time, it took Austria, uh, Austria, Hungary collapsing from uh, nationalist uprisings within their own empire for them to lose the war because Italy wasn't doing it. Italy was not cutting it. Russia had gone through, was Russia was going through revolution after 1917. It, it, Italy lost millions of men to do nothing. Now that might be one hell of an insult to the Italians, but uh, and I guess it could also be analogous to what's going on in Ukraine right now, but they kept attacking in the Asanzo as uh, like they had a Navy. They could have attacked somewhere else. They, and it's not like they had to protect their own coastline. The The French Navy was operating in the Mediterranean, i.e. one of the, one of the other largest navies on the planet at the time. So y- you could have used your own Navy to do some sort of amphibious landing behind the enemy lines like you didn't have to go far like you're attacking you attack just a few miles behind the enemy lines threaten the flanks and bam and you can supply it by sea if you take a port that is like there the italians had things up their sleeve that they could have done it's like it's not like they were some backwards power during world war one sure they were a laggard comparatively to say britain france or germany or russia but it's not like it was Ethiopia trying to fight Italy. <laughs> it was it, it was Italy trying to fight Austria-Hungary. And Austria-Hungary already had multiple fronts to fight on. So it's it but they kept attacking in the Asanzo. 1 uh, 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 10 11 12 battles of the Asanzo. Look it up. There are 12 battles of the Asanzo. It's it's crazy. And that that's what this is. That with these sanctions, it's it's the the Asanzo, except it does nothing, just just like the Asanzo. It's so insulting, but that's what they're doing. They're doing a twelfth sanctions package. If the first eleven didn't get it done, 
then give it a rest. <laughs> like, come on, find something new. It, it, you're spamming. You're just spamming, and it's it's not working. Stop button mashing. <laughs> it's it's crazy. But you, these are our allies. Okay, the, these are the countries that you and I have to be ready to protect at the turn of a dime. Yeah, definitely countries we want to be allies with. Ugh. How worthless. But it's it's crazy. Now, all in all, all in all, I'll, I'll start to wind it down here. But all in all, I am really left remembering. And here I go quoting myself again. But I, I think the, that, that the work I put into those episodes is really paying off. Because the things I said are coming back in a big way. Because I'm left remembering what I said in my second anniversary episode. Given all the chaos going on around the world in Niger and Ukraine, the, the, the Middle East, and impending troubles with Taiwan and apparently North Korea now too, I just can't help but remember what I said on my second anniversary episode. Namely that America should use the chaos and the disruption that was already going to be there from the emerging of the multipolar world order. I said we should use that, that ch the changing times, as a perfect excuse to finally leave. Exit stage left. At least then, uh, once we've left, at last, at last, leave. Once we've done that, we remove ourselves from our position as the world's policemen. And when you do that, suddenly things that you weren't able to do before become options like having peaceful relations with Russia, peaceful relations with China and Iran and North Korea, having trade with China, Iran, North Korea, Russia, instead of, we don't like you, so we're going to sanction you, which does nothing for anybody, especially us. We could be doing trade. Why wouldn't we do trade with the, the second largest or in purchasing power parity terms? the largest economy in the world. Why would we not trade with China? Why would we not trade with Russia, the fifth largest economy in the world? Why, why would we not do that? Why not cut a side deal with the North Koreans and remove ourselves from the continent so that whichever one of them wins out in the end, we have a deal? Or hell, if they unify, and say the Kim dynasty gets a, a lot of influence in the new government as, as a sort of constitutional monarchy type deal where they merge. If we have good relations with both, then even a merger between the two would be to our benefit because we'd have people on both sides invested in trade with us just as we are invested with trade with them. Like, I said it. I said it almost a year ago. We have the third anniversary coming up. But I said it, we could have used the chaos that we're seeing today as a perfect excuse to just walk away and go, you know what? We're not dealing with that. You know what? We're not dealing with that. You know what? We're not dealing with that. We're going to be over here. We're going to protect ourselves. Oh, wow. All this, all these peace deals in the Middle East, all these peace deals in the Middle East, we could have been using that and playing off of that and going, oh, there's peace in the region. We can leave. Oh, there's peace in the region. And there's no power vacuum. Okay, we can leave. Goodbye. Sorry for all the trouble we've caused, you know. Hey, would you like a trade deal while we're leaving? You know, something useful. I said it back then. 
And now as we're seeing all these conflicts bubbling up and all this general chaos around the scene and childish behavior on the part of the Ukrainians, we could have been setting ourselves up for success by leaving and in our in our place leaving behind a trade deal instead we decided to double down on failed policy of interventionism military permanent military alliances and permanent military occupation and it's it's not going to end well for us but as we're watching all this chaos unfold overseas i just can't help but remember saying the things that i said and i'm like wow what if we did what i said i i was so right you know i just I just don't know how I do it, you guys. <laughs> but we, we could have done it. We could have finally left and stopped being the world's police right, just in time for the multipolar world order to kick in. And we could have done trade with everybody and benefited from the rise of the multipolar world order instead of fighting it uh, to the bitter end just to lose and have to renegotiate everything with everyone else anyway after the fact. We could have set ourselves up for success. We could have we we could have gone home. We could have gone home. And then once we left, we could begin to build an exciting and prosperous future for the United States. And I, I don't think it's too late. I I don't think it's too late. Not yet anyway. But like I said, I think that the United States. Uh, it might not seem like it now, given how opposed we've been to the emergence of the multipolar world order. I maintain my belief that the United States stands to benefit the most from the rise of the multipolar world order. I do believe that. Now, it's probably going to take a tr second Trump presidency for you to see that if you don't believe me. But you know what? I'll take that bet, too. I will take that bet, too. But that, my lovely listeners, is all I've got for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. Uh, it's nice to not be going for two hours, but <laughs> unless I did go for two hours, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, hey, but you know what? The, the world is changing. Mm -hmm, yeah, the world is changing. Lots of conflicts, lots of potential conflicts. But I think on the other side of this, we'll be living in a very different and perhaps better world. Perhaps, depending on who you are, of course. It's always that way. It's always subjective when you talk about better. But at least for the United States, it'll probably be better, you know. And you know what? That's what really counts. So, <laughs> but like we always say, no matter what happens, we will have fun watching that change together. Now, I've been your host, Tyshawn Wade. And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus. This segment was taken from my podcast, This Week in Geopolitics. I have new episodes every Monday, so if you like what you heard, consider giving me a follow. Thanks for listening, and hopefully I'll see you next time. Servus.